Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, April 4th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The insurance giant Cigna and its drug benefit arm, Express Scripts, just announced plans to lower the out-of-pocket cost of insulin for many patients. STAT's Matt Herper will join us to explain this news as well as the larger context on why insulin pricing is so often in the headlines these days. For some reason, this was the week that several news organizations put out big pieces on the burgeoning market for online prescriptions for drugs for erectile dysfunction and other health conditions. We'll break down this brave new world and explain why it's now reaching mainstream consciousness. This is a podcast after all, so we decided it was a good place to talk about the diagnostic potential of sound. We talked to Jim Harper, the CEO of a Boston startup called Sond Health, which is analyzing voice samples to help develop a smartphone app that could be used to aid in diagnosing depression. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean hot takes on biotech billionaire Patrick Soon-Shong's latest dust-up and a cancer research conference dominated by headlines about mice and test tubes. And we'll also ask why soon-to-be ex-FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb just won't go away. And now a quick word about a new product from STAT. For more market-moving analysis of the life sciences industry, join STAT Expert Advantage, a conference call subscription service brought to you by STAT and Slingshot Insights. Members can access up to 12 exclusive interviews a year and the full archive of calls between STAT's national biotech team and key opinion leaders. Topics are what's top of mind for executives and investors. From clinical trial results and FDA drug approvals to DC policy issues that will affect the entire healthcare landscape. See more upcoming call topics and become a member today at statnews.com slash SEA. A vial of insulin that would have cost $180 in 1996 could cost $1,500 now. People with diabetes, of course, need insulin to live, and there have been scary news reports of patients who have died because they tried to forgo insulin due to being underinsured. In fact, one Yale study says that one in four diabetes patients have tried to stretch their insulin at some point. All of this has put a harsh spotlight on both drug companies that make insulin and the pharmacy benefit managers that act as middlemen between those drug makers and patients. One benefit manager, that's Express Scripts, which is part of the health insurance giant Cigna, announced a new program in which members of participating health plans will be able to get their insulin for $25 a month. That's a 40% cut for the average patient and a huge discount for many. The timing of that Express Scripts announcement was, shall we say, interesting. Given that Congress is about to hold hearings at which insurers and benefit managers are expected to be on the hot seat. Joining us today to talk about that is Matt Herper, our stat colleague and frequent guest in the podcast. Matt, it is great as always to have you on the show. It's great as always to be here. Okay, Matt, so say I'm a patient covered by Cigna. What changes for me under this new policy? Well, that depends on your plan sponsor, which for most people is their employer. They have to actually sign up. Cigna and Express Scripts can't just do this unilaterally. Assuming that they do, even if you were on a high deductible plan where in the early months of the year you were spending hundreds of dollars on insulin, you will pay a flat $25 per month per 30-day insulin prescription for the whole year. So that sounds pretty straightforward, but behind the scenes, it's a lot more complicated, right? Yes, it is. And it has to do with how these prices have gotten so high. 
there's been this gamesmanship. Drug companies increasing their list prices on insulin, and then PBMs like Express Scripts negotiating bigger rebates, which they get later on, and pass to the health plan, but not necessarily directly back to the patient. So what's actually happening here is Express Scripts negotiated new lower prices with the drug makers that make insulin, but they also are moving things around so that a patient in a high deductible health plan who might have paid coinsurance on the total increased list price of insulin is now just paying a monthly copay. This is actually pretty much how insurance used to work from the consumer standpoint. So Matt, listening to that and, and reading your story this week, it struck me that, that you know the system was so broken and, and this fix that Express Scripts is proposing is complicated, but certainly is something they could have come up with in years past when they were gesticulating at this problem without changing anything. So I guess my question throughout it was, why now? Well, Express Scripts says they've been working on this for a while and pointed to other things they have done over time for patients with diabetes. But there is a House subcommittee hearing next week and also a Senate finance committee hearing, both involving the PBMs. And the drug makers have been under a lot of pressure too. Part of what makes this plan work is that the makers of insulin came on board with bigger discounts. So everyone's on the hot seat. Everyone's kind of trying to take the pressure off. The obvious question is, should the system work this way? If it's better to have a copay, not coinsurance for insulin, aren't there likely other expensive drugs where that's also the case? So let's talk a little bit more about those conversations on Capitol Hill that you referenced. Um, How big of a deal are are they going to be and and what are you going to be watching for? I think they'll probably be about as big a deal as the recent hearings we saw with the pharmaceutical CEOs. There's this slow march toward the system changing. It's not entirely clear the Senate was happy with this outcome. So I do think things are changing, but I'd be surprised by major fireworks. So Matt, this often seems to come down to a blame game between drug companies and the PBMs. Is there a way to say who's really at fault here? I think it's really difficult. It's absolutely true that drug companies set their list prices and bear responsibilities for them. It's also true that some of the insurance plan designs here are problematic. You'd think making sure people can afford insulin would be a basic part of a drug plan. One of the key questions to me really is, in these negotiations, how much leverage does each party have? And we really don't know. PBMs will say the drug companies come in with a list price and they negotiate a rebate. Drug companies will argue that they're often being told they need a rebate of a certain size to get formulary access. It's not really clear who's driving the system, and it's possible, as in many negotiations, that nobody is, and that's why it's gotten so out of control. This is part of why the Trump administration is so interested in getting rid of rebates, but again, that's a big experiment, and some economists say it may not lower drug costs. You know, as we said, this is a complicated issue, but it's definitely something that awareness needs to be raised on this issue. I know, Matt, one of the more alarming statistics in your story that I that I sort of saw was, you know, how there are some patients who are basically rationing their insulin. They're, you know, they're basically using nine months of insulin per year. It's worse than that, Adam. What it is, is that the average patient on a high deductible health plan that wasn't taking steps to make sure insulin is covered was using nine months of insulin instead of 10 months of insulin a year. But that 10 months is lowered because you have people coming on and off the plan. And that nine months isn't patients cutting one month of insulin. It's probably the result of somebody who decided not to use a lot of insulin and is not taking a drug they need and is bringing down the average. So it really is a big concern if people are trying to stretch, but the real fear is that there are some patients who may not be taking a medicine that they really need at all. (laughs) 
Big Snoop Dogg here, and I know you're gonna dig this. Yeah. Sexual performance issues are more common than you think. Maybe not for me, but probably for you. What you just heard is Snoop Dogg. Yes, that's Snoop Dogg. Narrating a TV ad for Hims. That's a San Francisco startup with very millennial-friendly branding that's pitching online prescriptions for drugs for erectile dysfunction and other conditions. Now, thank goodness this is not a problem for Snoop, but it probably is for you. So Hims is among a handful of new companies that are selling drugs for sexual health, hair loss, and birth control online. These drugs are sometimes prescribed off-label, which is for purposes that they were not originally approved for. And to get them, these companies don't require patients to see doctors in person or even interact with them much at all. In most cases, patients just fill out a form about their medical symptoms and their medical history. We're talking about all of this because these companies were the subject of some fairly negative stories in Bloomberg and The New York Times this week. So these stories involve quotes that couldn't have been good for the blood pressure of these companies' PR consultants. One expert told Bloomberg that, quote, it's not clear to me that this is totally kosher, end quote. Another expert told the New York Times that, quote, it's restaurant menu medicine, end quote. So the thing that I thought was sort of interesting is, is why now? Why did these stories come out at this specific moment? I think these companies have been gaining steam over the last few years, but there was no real news peg this week. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. Most likely it's happenstance. I, I don't think that the newsrooms of the New York Times or Bloomberg were uh, colluding on this, but it kind of reminds me of the saga of Juul and, and sort of nicotine vapor companies where we knew about them, we understood to a degree what they were, and then they had to reach a critical mass probably of just inescapable advertising. You know, there was no Snoop Dogg for Juul, but something akin to that. And at that point, it became something that was not really ignorable. And so you can kind of tell when when there's sort of the magic in the air of a coming like New York Times story on, on some kind of trend, whether it be farm to table restaurants in Brooklyn or online ordering erectile dysfunction drugs. There's definitely something about these companies, I think, sort of entering the zeitgeist right now, just from marketing standpoint. You see the ads in train stations, subway stops, uh, you hear them on the radio. So, you know, it's certainly kind of garnering a lot more attention than it was months ago. Another thing that's happened in the past few months is a lot of these companies have been announcing they're moving into new areas. One of them is even talking about selling migraine drugs this way. So there may be some increasing medical concern among doctors as it's not just erectile dysfunction drugs, which maybe people could get on the internet already. So let's go a little deeper into their marketing strategies. I think you can spot the ads from these companies a mile away because they all look the same and they all look like a parody of how to market to millennials. In fact, we looked this up and the same creative agency, a firm called Gin Lane that did brand strategy and art direction for Hims, also worked on campaigns for the other sort of canonical millennial brands. So that's brands like Everlane, Sweetgreen, Warby Parker, Harry's. It's all the same firm. So that's funny in just sort of an objective sense. And as you mentioned before, the like closely current serif fonts and, and other things that are traditionally attractive to apparently a desirable demographic. But what's striking is that unlike razors or salads or slacks or eyeglasses that get shipped to your house, drugs can kill you. And so I think that kind of is a good pivot point to what I think is the most interesting part of these stories is that nobody can totally agree on what the legalities are here. We've been seeing this as a problem with hospitals for years. They'll advertise a drug or a treatment without noting the risk that a drug company would have to. But these companies seem to take that to a new level. They can just make a little one-line pitch, which a pharmaceutical company would love to do, without all that extra verbiage everyone always makes fun of in drug ads. 
And it seems like the legal loophole that these companies operate on is basically they're sort of a middleman, right? They're not the drug company and they're not the doctor, but they're sort of sitting there in the middle uh, and everything's sort of passing through them. Therefore, they don't have to, to abide by sort of the same drug marketing rules that are mandated by the FDA. Is that your understanding of this? I think that's exactly the worry. And I think since a lot of them started with a rectal dysfunction medicine, which seemed fairly safe, this didn't seem so worrying. But as they move to more and more areas, the question of can the doctor do their job through an online form for a patient who is seeking a particular drug is going to get bigger. And it's interesting also that these companies, even though from a consumer-facing standpoint, you are interacting with a doctor online to get a prescription, these companies don't actually employ those doctors. Is that right, Rebecca? That's right, Adam. And I think it's a very intentional decision by these companies to try to stay in line with at least what they perceive to be the laws in play here. That if you are in the business of hiring doctors, you have to abide by a whole different set of rules than if you're sort of contracting out. The whole thing reminds me of what Facebook got plenty of heat for, which was the idea that they're just a neutral tech platform rather than sort of a media company responsible for the content on their site. This idea of these tech companies being, you know, sort of a channel or a conduit for this highly regulated and highly influential stuff to happen on, I think is raising a lot of questions. And I think now that the New York Times and Bloomberg have written about these issues, probably bringing them to the attention of people that might not have otherwise known about them, it'll be interesting to see if these companies are subject to more scrutiny and more questions. When I was in high school, Snoop Dogg was famous in part because he was a former drug dealer. Now he's marketing prescription drugs. I really can't think of a better encapsulation of where we are in healthcare right now. And with that, Matt, thank you again for joining us this week. Thanks a lot for having me. Rebecca, why are you speaking in gibberish? So what I just recited is an example of the kind of voice data that's of great interest to a Boston startup called Sond Health. Sond is collecting a trove of voice samples, just like mine, and then analyzing them to try to develop software that could aid in diagnosing depression. So how does saying pa, ta, and ka a bunch of times give anyone insight into whether you're depressed? So Sond has developed algorithms to extract vocal characteristics of speech things like the frequency at which my vocal cords are vibrating from voice samples like mine. And the idea is to draw correlations between these voice measurements and symptoms associated with depression. Son's still in the research phase, but the end goal is to market a smartphone app that would listen to the sound of your voice and use that to tell you if you should get screened for depression. Joining us today here at STAT headquarters to talk more about this research is San CEO, Jim Harper. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. It's good to be here. So Jim, let's start big picture. There are already tools out there to get more people screened for depression. Why do you think we need a smartphone app to listen for cues in the sound of one's voice? So for depression and a lot of other conditions, despite the fact that we have great diagnostic tools and screening tools, the reality is that it's often years before people have their first depressive episode and ultimately seek care for that condition. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that not always related to the quality of the diagnostic, but more the fact that people who are in position of making the decision of when to seek care are usually the least qualified to make that determination. And this is something we hope will help. 
Jim, let's back up and talk about your research. Sond is running an ongoing human subject study in India. That study has enrolled 10,000 patient volunteers who've come into the hospital for any number of complaints, like asthma or congestive heart failure. The patient volunteers sit down with a technician who records them saying things like pa-ta-ka, and then gives them a mental health screening. So Jim, tell us why you're doing this study in India. So we're doing it in India for a couple of reasons. One, we started most of our research, and a lot of the research around the world has actually been done with English language samples. For something like depression and for vocal biomarkers, it's important to look at data from other languages and other cultures to understand how well the technology is going to translate. So we already heard Rebecca saying pa-ta-ka. Let's listen to a few more of the kinds of voice samples Sans collecting. We should note that the audio clips we're about to play were recorded by a San staffer, not the actual patients in India, because San was concerned about patient privacy. Banana, 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 banana. Mama made some lemon jam. So, Jim, what's the point of having patients say these things in particular? Why not have them, you know, read Shakespeare? So the ultimate goal is not to have people reading or saying things of a specific nature. What we are developing the platform to be able to do is listen to hopefully any four to eight word speech sample and extract enough information to give us meaningful measures of health. One way that I tend to introduce this is you have probably had the experience, like I have, of having a conversation with your mother or somebody knows you well, and even in a few seconds over the phone, they're picking up on things like, uh, do you have a cold? Maybe, you know, Jim, you haven't slept much. You sound like you're tired. Those are intuitively vocal biomarkers that we're listening to. And so what we need are a range of short samples that give machine learning and our technology a chance to learn just like your mother learned. So, Jim, after your team collects these voice samples, you analyze them using algorithms that your team developed. Tell us more about the kinds of vocal characteristics that you're extracting. So you can extract as many, it's pretty unlimited. There are thousands of different acoustic features that can be defined mathematically. I tend to group them into three major categories. Uh, There are the rhythm and melody of speech. The technical term is prosody. Those are things like I'm doing now, I will change pitch, I will change volume to emphasize and to make my speech more interesting. There are articulatory features. Those are the ones that help to tell where your tongue, your soft palate, all of the things and the muscles that you move in the instrument that makes articulate speech. Those are things that are typically used for speech recognition systems, looking at content of speech. So Jim, you're doing all this research and analysis to inform development of a smartphone app that could be used as a diagnostic aid. So pretend I'm a patient who might use it. Explain to me in theory how it would work and what it would tell me. So as a patient, Right now, what we are beginning to offer is the capability to do these cued voice samples, a few seconds each. You would be guided through, you'd select a number of conditions that are interesting to you, things like sinus congestion or fatigue or more uh, medical conditions once we have those regulated and cleared, things like depression, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. And so it would walk you through three, maybe four short voice samples And that audio then would be analyzed, those features that I talked about, and the patterns in those features that correspond with disease would be measured and give you some scores that would help you to understand your health at that moment and to create a history over that measure and previous measures of how that particular aspect of your health is changing. 
So you mentioned the regulatory angle. You're envisioning this as an app that would fall under the FDA's regulatory pathway for diagnostic aids. So obviously, before you can get a product like that on the market, you have to show that it works. What does proving the efficacy of an app look like? So it it looks like comparing our scores to the best validated tools for the function that we want to measure. So in the case of depression, there's a 10-question questionnaire called the Public Health Questionnaire 9. And it walks an individual through recall of how often over the last two weeks they've been bothered by the major symptom categories of depression. And the score on each question is added up. And if a person is above a certain level, they're typically determined to be moderate to severe risk of depression. What validation looks like for us is collecting that PHQ-9 data and voice from a large number of people in the population and training models to be accurate at predicting which individuals are going to score above that clinical threshold uh, on a level that's similar to the PHQ-9 itself. So we've seen concerns about privacy and security come up with voice assistants like Amazon's Alexa. How are you thinking about privacy here, especially as you work in a sensitive field like mental health? Yeah, it's a a great question, an important one to address early. And, you know, the reason in part that we use pataka and people reading sentences is precisely to manage privacy from the beginning. We are not turning on the microphone and having it always listen to people at this point. And we want, as we do the research and as people begin to use it, to establish that trust, that it's only when they are using and knowing that they're measuring their health that they will get that audio sent to a remote server and analyzed. Thinking farther along, we need to have in place protections that, for example, prevent me on my phone from sitting across from Adam and measuring his speech. And so because voice is a strong biomarker as well, the technology is coming together where the roadmap would be to integrate and to lock out health measurements if it isn't the consented individual or owner of the phone as one example of how privacy needs to be protected. So Jim, we've been talking today mainly about your focus on depression. Are there any other indications where this technology could be used? It is very easy as a company to focus on just one condition. Even our conversation really focused on depression because that's where we have the most early data. But the reality is we are seeing the potential to measure a range of conditions in the respiratory system, even some cardiac conditions, a wide range of brain and neurological health. Jim, please keep us posted on Sans Progress, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Next up, we will do the latest iteration of your very favorite segment on this podcast, The Lightning Round. So first of all, this week played host to the American Association for Cancer Research Annual Meeting, or AACR, in Atlanta. And Adam, what was the pulse of the conference this year? The pulse was kind of, I don't know, dim, maybe is the word I would use. It, you know, in years past, AACR has kind of tried to rival the sort of larger ASCO annual meeting in terms of sort of headline-grabbing cancer news. This year was kind of much more muted. Uh, you know, in, in old days, AACR used to be kind of the meeting where you'd go to see uh, presentations on experiments done in test tubes and mice. And this year was kind of like that. I actually wrote a story about experiments done in test tubes and mice. So, you know, not that that's not important, but a little bit less headline grabby this year than in years past. 
I feel like just as an external observer, AACR has always been kind of a surrogate for what's going on in oncology. And so when things were kind of normal in terms of the, the rate of breakthroughs, ASCO was bigger, AACR, as you mentioned, was smaller. When there was the big boom in immunotherapy a few years ago, there was just like too much positive data to be contained at ASCO. And so that sort of buoyed AACR up. But then there were some pretty disappointing things that have happened in immunotherapy over the past couple of years. And so maybe we've now just kind of returned to a normalcy that we thought maybe we'd never go back to. So next up, billionaire and sometimes stat foil Patrick Soon-Cheong is in the news this week. Uh, Rebecca, what is going on? Yeah, so lately, Patrick Soon-Cheong has been sort of basking in the good press of being the savior of the LA Times, which he bought last year and has been, to his credit, revitalizing. Uh, However, this week, his Google name alert was not so great. Um, Sorrento Therapeutics, uh, that's a drug maker, uh, filed a lawsuit against him alleging that he has masterminded a catch and kill scheme to rob it of a cancer drug that would have competed with Abraxane. Uh, That's the drug that Soonshong co-developed and has a hefty financial stake in. And I have to say, the the Sorrento lawyers and their PR consultants coming up with the catch and kill slogan for this thing, that was a stroke of brilliance. That's true. And it is kind of amazing that you know, Patrick Sunchong has been bedeviled by lawsuits like this, stemming from biotech deals that he's done. But somehow each one has some kind of detail that like rises it above the fray. This one, the phrase catch and kill. The last one, because he was being sued by Cher. Um, speaking of Cher, Damien, what is the status on that legal dispute? The gist was that Cher owned stock in a private biotech firm that would be acquired by a Patrick Sunchong company. And she alleged that she was basically bilked out of her shares and and misinformed and and that the law had been broken. That was an entertaining combination of proper noun, Cher and Patrick Soon-Chong. However, according to the Wall Street Journal, that litigation has since ended. And when we were talking about this earlier, Damien, you had an idea for the headline we should have gone with. Oh, yes, of course. That was Soon-Chong's suit hopes to succeed where Cher failed. Cher does not fail. So lastly, I think there's something kind of big happening Friday, April 5th, but I can't quite remember what that is. Damien, help me out here. That's right, Adam. So Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner of the FDA, who announced that he was going to resign from his post a month ago, will finally actually be doing so. And it's not that any of us, I think, wants to see Scott go for any kind of policy reason or anything like that. It's just that his farewell tour has been infinite and exhausting. I also think the farewell tour has been very policy heavy. Like he has not become a lame duck sort of riding out the last few weeks, like a high school senior who has already received their college acceptance. Scott Gottlieb has been working this whole time and he keeps tweeting. He keeps putting out new policy announcements and decisions. And it just kind of feels like we've been saying goodbye to him for a million years. I agree. I mean, my email inbox has been inundated this week with, you know, media statements from Scott Gottlieb. And I've just, I'm I'm sort of tired of it. And I like Scott, but I want him to go away. Well, it's actually apparently become a drag on federal resources because just Thursday morning, the official FDA account tweeted, join us as we wish a fond farewell to Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who is near the end of his last week at FDA. We'll be retweeting some tributes throughout the morning. Hashtag farewell, Dr. G. Dr. G? (laughs) Yeah. Go home, Scott. Yeah, Dr. G, go away.
that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Before we go, we want to tell you about a biotech chat that Adam and Matt Herper are putting on next week. That's Tuesday, April 9th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And fans of Reddit will be happy to know that it is an Ask Me Anything style chat. You can ask us anything. And you can sign up for that on statnews.com. Thank you to Hyacinth Abinado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, which 90s rap star you'd buy pills from. Either way, you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, we hope you'll leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week in the post-Gottlieb era.